this episode, I sat down to interview my good friend, Vlad Borikov. Vlad is a master's student in the Manufacturing Systems and Engineering program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Vlad and I know each other from our time building one of the first Hyperloop pod prototypes, Badgerloop. After working with Vlad extensively over the course of a two-year period and keeping up with Vlad's work during his time as a master's student at the university, I can say with absolute confidence that Vlad is one of the most intelligent and knowledgeable, brilliant, and capable early 20-something engineers that I know. I sat down with Vlad to learn more about a cutting-edge new technology resource called generative design, a technology that I believe will transform how engineers, marketers, industrial designers, graphic designers, and entrepreneurs work and create. Generative design is one of the technology resources that will enable us to more efficiently utilize our time, raw materials, and many, many other important assets that we have access to, and importantly, that we have finite and limited access to. So, without further ado, I'll hand it off to my friend Vlad. How's it going? I'm here with Vlad Bryakov, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about generative design. Vlad, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Vladimir, and I am uh, uh, currently I'm a grad student studying manufacturing. My undergrad was in engineering mechanics, uh, and I have some interest in these optimization techniques based on my undergrad, and then uh, just learning how to make things on an industrial level for grad school. Cool. So you want to just tell us a little bit, maybe some of the projects that you've worked on or things that you've built in the past, set the context a little bit for why you're interested in generative design and topology optimization? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm going to try to be concise, but um, in undergrad, my goal was to be able to create anything that I could imagine. So what I would do is I would spend a lot of time using computer-aided design tools, and I would spend a lot of time um, machining and actually making those ideas. So I learned about computer numeric control, that sort of thing. Um, and then engineering mechanics gave me a background in just like analysis and predicting failure in parts. Um, regarding projects I did, uh, I worked on some some very, very rudimentary motorcycle-type stuff with student orgs here. From that, I moved on to a robotics team for Mars Rover-type type stuff. Um, I was like a manufacturing specialist for both teams. Uh, from there, I moved on to a lunar mining project, and then uh, where I met Max was on Badger Loop. Um, I think that's about it for projects. Um, yeah. So. You've, done, you've done some really cool research also, which I'm sure that we'll get into. Yeah, that's right. So um, I had a, I had sort of a, a fall semester where I took some time and worked in a, in a lab. It was Professor Chan's lab at University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison. It was the computational uh, design and manufacturing lab. So most of the work they did there was on computers, and then the expertise that I brought was how to actually realize their designs. Um, I'm a bit of a, well, I'm not a CS major, but I know a bit about programming and I'm a big gearhead, so I like squeezing performance out of computers. And their optimizations were very uh, computationally expensive, so having somebody with that overlapping skill set uh, was uh, unusual, and I was able to actually print their parts that weren't being printed before. So 
yeah, it was really cool. I ended up getting published in like my first semester of master's program, which is unheard of. I was really happy about that. Um, and then Professor Chan is amazing. So I'm really happy to work with him. Two follow-up questions to that. You said your head? Uh, gearhead. Gearhead. Got it. Yeah, I, I like... Uh, I like building uh, my own machines or getting just retired servers. And um, my my dad works with um, computer networks, so he does like big analysis on just computer machines. So growing up, I had access to just that type of knowledge, and it helped me maintain my hardware and just be computer savvy. Uh, like I run most of my computers in Linux. Uh, whatever I do in Windows is for engineering. And then, I don't know. I won't make fun of your laptop. <laughs> I'm a MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, it's a good machine. I have a, I have a MacBook. I'm just not running uh, Apple OS on it right now. So <laughs> it's, great, it's great hardware. So That's funny. I like yeah, the hardware is incredible, and the user interface for anyone who doesn't do what you do is... is yeah, it's, uh, nice. it's good design. So cool. So one question about you before we dive into the other sure. parts about you. But how did you get interested in, in merging computational everything with, with being a gearhead? What, what was it? So what got me going on the path was... Um, I love the path. Yeah, the path. So I had a friend who was a software engineering major from Platteville. And he, his name's uh, John Antonuk, he turned me towards uh, artificial intelligence and he was explaining to me how it's already here and it's working. And he was explaining how you can use statistical methods to find non-intuitive solutions. Um, so that's the first cool part about it. But additionally, even if you're not going necessarily down the AI route, using just statistical methods to analyze large data sets, you can get like very sophisticated optimizations, and I really like that. Um, so, and then I looked at what sort of optimizations were occurring in the field of engineering, and again, it was just this weird overlap where people like usually had like parts of it, but bringing it all together was kind of unusual. So, um, although the field is fairly developed, at least in structural mechanics, so. Just, uh, I mentioned earlier how my, my goal in undergrad was to design or be able to create and bring into reality things that were in my mind. What generative design and like machine learning and these AI methods are just like very intense statistical methods lets you do is find solutions that you couldn't imagine. And I thought that was like a nice next step. And that's sort of been the like, the, my motto or like guiding philosophy for my grad graduate program. So just like undergrad was computer aided design, um, and then right now I want to do computer aided decision making, and it's very versatile. So hopefully that'll work out. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you. We're talking about generative design. Can you maybe give a quick summary of, of how you define generative design and, and how the field is, defines generative design? Yeah, so um, the way I view generative design is using uh, coding uh, to procedurally create uh, designs. 
So typically that occurs in the form of an optimization, but in my mind, it doesn't have to be. It just has to be something that would be very cumbersome or close to impossible to do manually. So it's kind of like, a, I don't want to call it automatic. It's using code, it's using loops, it's using, uh, yeah, it's just a merging of coding and design together, right? And that's just very broadly how I describe it. Um, I think it's going to keep growing because I keep meeting a lot of uh, engineering majors who double major in some form of engineering, but also computer science. So I think it'll pick up for sure. Cool. And where did that field come from? Because from my understanding at the moment, Generative design as a concept has existed for a while, but in like 2015 or 2016, Autodesk released a pretty powerful tool bringing generative design and computer-aided design kind of interlinking into each yeah. other. Yeah. Um, or using the code for engineering purposes or design purposes would generally be to solve a problem, right? And what's happened is that computers have unlocked they've basically blown the ceiling off of limitations with regard to complexity. So complexity in design has become essentially free. And then when you also bring into additive manufacturing, namely like 3D printing, you get another sort of ceiling that got shifted off for, you know, free complexity for 3D printing designs, like actually making your part. Um, as for where the field arose from, to answer your original question, I guess, would be um, a lot of engineering actually was sort of limited by computers. So we knew a lot of the equations for like fluids or thermodynamics or structural mechanics. And this is where the engineering background, engineering mechanics background comes into play. Uh, but computers have unlocked those because we can actually solve them now. So before, like we could solve, for example, uh, solve... Uh, the stresses that are occurring in like a box or a cylinder or these like basic geometric shapes. Um, there's a technique called finite elements where you can basically take um, more complicated geometries and split them up into those basic building blocks and analyze them all together. Um, if you're doing it by hand, you'd be limited. You would limit yourself to how many blocks you could cut up your design into to actually solve it. Um, but with computers, you can do it automatically, um, and it just makes it that much more powerful. Um, generative design is basically uh, linking these uh, like newly unlocked optimization tools with just advances in computing. So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling. No, um, this is all great. Like concisely, just advances in computing have unlocked a lot of engineering with respect to analysis. Um, and while analysis is great, if you can link the design process to the analysis process, you, you can iterate very, very quickly. And then you can, like, you can generate designs that you then choose which one you like, hence generative design, right? Um, you could, for example, write an algorithm where you make like thousands upon thousands of designs and then you have another program that selects the ones that you like, and you pick those out. Mm. Um, so that's what generative design means. Um, it doesn't have to be mechanical. 
It can be circuit boards. It can be planning the, the layout of furniture in a room for a school. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like problem solving in a way. For me, as a materials engineer, I'm really excited about when you have something like quantum computing, which unlocks an entire new level of computing power and a new set of problems that you can solve. Uh, all of the quantum mechanics problems that we currently can't solve. And then you can start using generative design to generatively design new molecules or new, new quantum systems. It's going to be really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the development of using uh, graphics cards or GPUs for computation is what's enabling a lot of the AI research happening now. A lot of these fields that have had sort of a mini renaissance, they've had these jumps occurring, you know, intermittently throughout decades. And some of these ideas are hundreds of years old. It's like based in mathematics. Um, when quantum computing arises, I, I think it's, uh, you know, inevitable that we would see a similar resurgence. Cool. So, so the question there, when you talk about artificial intelligence, yeah. are we seeing artificial intelligence in generative design or is, is, is it pretty much right now just people writing the code that they want, scripting it and applying it without any machine learning or neural networks involved? Uh, for generative design, you can use neural networks, but you don't have to. So um, as it stands now, my interpretation of AI is just very clever statistical methods. Mm -hmm. And some of them are deductive, some of them are inductive, and the inductive approaches are, are what, you know, let some of these, like the AlphaGo robot beat, uh, beat games that are uh, so complicated that brute force approaches don't work anymore and it sort of approximates or emulates uh, like a sentient AI. But, yeah, so, but just like to be, to be clear, I view those still as statistical approaches. I don't think it has anything to do with sentience on any level. Uh, so it's just statistics, really. Um, and statistics are 100% being used for optimization. You have to. There's no other way. Like, how else are you going to choose from your generated designs? Um, and then what else? So machine learning, I don't know. I Maybe not my area of expertise. I, like, dabble in uh, TensorFlow and stuff, but it's complicated. Um, I recommend just sound fundamentals and um, sound fundamentals in machine learning or in just statistics in general well you have to have uh, fundamentals in statistics and the machine learning is like a branch of that right but I, I would hesitate to um, use machine learning as a black box mm -hmm. you should have more understanding of what's going on if you're going to be implementing these techniques um Optimization using advanced tools has to be significant. It can be kind of a trap if you don't know what's going on, right? So advanced like, tools, you mean some like the design tools that you're using or the, yeah. the software that you're using? Right. So um, if you're, I mean, we're kind of, I'm starting to talk about sort of the, my philosophy with regards to optimization mm -hmm. design and it's how um, 
if you take a practical approach where, for instance, you're making lots of physical testing, we're doing lots of physical testing, you'll know exactly what's breaking and maybe not how, but it won't matter because that's exactly what you're using. If you're relying very heavily on theory, uh, that's great. That's uh, a, a prime component why we attend university. Um, but if you make a mistake somewhere, it can collapse very quickly, right? And that's that's just part of the deal of really pushing the pushing the boundaries. Um, with with this generative, say for instance, you're doing a structural generative design optimization, you have to dictate to your test scenario what conditions you're testing for, and if you if you uh, if you set the wrong conditions and you exhibit something else out in the field, you're going to have a broken part, right? Mm. And if you're really optimizing it to like very slim uh, safety factors, for example, where you're um, where you're really getting that benefit of using this approach, it's just it can be more fragile, but you also get the bigger benefit. So it's like risk reward. Um, well, that make it sound kind of grim. Mm -hmm. um, that's that would be like the generative design approach of like really pushing the limit but there's also the other component advantage where you get to analyze larger data sets that your mind just can't comprehend at all at once mm -hmm. right so so let's talk about that for a minute and looping back to the ai piece so the overarching question here is is where in generative design right now so what what specific as, as, aspect of the generative design flow, if you have the flow chart of generative design and how the process actually works, mm -hmm. where where is machine learning, um, maybe maybe more complex machine learning neural networks or other versions of rule-based artificial intelligence, where in that flow chart of how the generative design process works is artificial intelligence being incorporated? Um, from what I can tell, um, optimization or the engineers that I've talked to, the researchers, my professor, they maybe frown a little bit with regards to machine learning. They maybe don't like it as much because it's seen as like this machine learning soup that you just kind of throw data into and mix around, mm -hmm. um, at least in the research community. But if you know exactly what you're doing, if you understand what algorithm you're using and why, you understand your neural network you know, model, and you can rigorously defend its use, then it makes sense. Um, but at that point, you're essentially describing a statistical method, right? So machine learning can be kind of vague uh, when it's described. Um, as for where it is in the generative design like flow, um, from what I've seen, it's used to uh, select good designs. Um, so, for an example, would be um, one of the one of the guys here does material sciences research, which is the department you're from, where they identify voids on a, on a surface, right? Which professor is it? I I can't remember. Okay. It's it's one of our coworkers. Um, but you could apply similar algorithm to try to identify. You could call them uh, defects in the you know thousands or millions of designs that you generated because looking through those yourselves would be impossible. And even if you were using the obvious selection criteria like weight, you know, smoothness or uh, volume, that sort of thing, or like minimum cross section on your on your device, 
uh, you would, you could still generate millions of you know competing tied designs. So, um, and then of course you know the computational limits are still a thing. Uh, a lot of the stuff you tack on a few exponents and you run out of you know computer memory. Even if you had you know millions of terabytes of memory, like it'll run out. So, what's the order of computing power that we're that we're currently operating on with these generative design programs? Uh, so you're usually restricted by your application. So you have to narrow down. Like, are you uh, designing like the pathways for roads in you know a city? Max, maximally. So how many? How many? Flops? Are we talking that you need to? Oh man, I, I couldn't tell you what it is in flops, but there's a there's a I believe it's Danish. Anyway, there's a top opt. That's the massively parallel uh, generative design you know tool set that uh, my uh, mentor or coworker co lab worker. He was a postdoctor soon. He left already. Uh, Francesco Mazzadri. Uh, he was using that, so top opt. How do you um, spell that? T O P O P T. Um, it's you can download it. It's accessible, but it stands for topology optimization. Yeah, um, but it is it runs on a cluster, meaning uh, a supercomputer. So lots of very powerful computers that are also interconnected with like very very fast cabling, right? Um, and he was using as many as he had. So uh, the designs that he generated had uh, multiple billion elements. And by elements, I'm referring to like the little blocks that make up your uh, your physical structure for analysis. So your voxel. Uh, sure. So in, um, in structural generative design, what you're doing or topology optimization is what's commonly referred to or shape optimization. Uh, it's how you you set your loading conditions, you specify like a volume fraction and a few other uh, parameters, and then you end up with these shapes that look like coral or trees, and um, we'll include pictures or something somewhere. But uh, yeah, the getting to that billion mark right now for, for a billion elements, even on a supercomputer cluster, is like kind of limiting. I'd say, well, you can do billions, but doing it all in one hit, one single optimization is tricky because you can just lop together, you know, a thousand, you know, million element designs and then you have your billion element model. But um, is the supercomputer that he's using, do you know where it is just so I can go pull some? some I mean, like every every university has clusters. We have multiples here. Uh, do you know um, which cluster he was running it on? We're running it on the one in the Discovery Center, so it's like HPC. Okay. Um, but the code that he was running was CPU parallelized. Um, and if you, the developments in AI are from GPUs, so uh, graphics cards, not processors. Mm -hmm. uh, getting code, getting code that to be parallel sometimes is just not possible. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have a process that needs to happen in sequence, mm -hmm. you can't do lots of variations all mm -hmm. at once. But with, with generative design, it's a bit more reasonable because you're trying to make millions of designs, so you just run it on millions of cores, mm -hmm. and then there you go. So uh, another question I have for you here is, 
topology optimization versus structural optimization versus generative design. Can you parse those for us and just yeah. explain what each is and what the difference so is? So the big umbrella is generative design. It's essentially problem solving or uh, using code to generate your models as opposed to like conventional computer-aided design tools like normal SOLIDWORKS stuff. Um, topology optimization would be a subset of mechanical generative design. So the reason it's generative is because you're not like designing a wheel and then varying the thickness manually. What you're doing is you're telling your program that here is my wheel, here is where I can't change any of the geometry, like the tire portion has to be there, it has to touch the surface, and then your generative design tool will design the spokes on that wheel, for example, and it'll look, it'll look like whatever it ends up looking like, and you know, if your code is correct, it'll be the best it can be. Um, but it's, uh, it's non-intuitive. So, so yeah, it's like mechanical. But you can apply similar methods to like other other fields, like uh, the void detection for material sciences, or discovering molecules, or it's just problem solving with computers enhancing everything. Um, but opti I mean, getting your code to be optimized correctly—that's a real. Uh, that appears to be the real challenge, at least from what I can tell. Um, you mentioned quantum computing. When that leap happens, it'll make things a bit easier, so you'll have more power at your fingertips, but it's a moving target. Once they have quantum, they'll have you know the next, the next ambition to chase after. Bigger quantum computers for a couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah, so they'll move. Yeah, I don't know what comes after quantum. Some other subatomic crazy string theory deal. Can't even imagine. Okay, so cool. So let's transition a little bit into some, maybe some stuff that's a little bit more tactical and practical. Sure. So what are some of the tools that you're using to actually do this generative design? Um, so I, my favorite right now is um, Rhino. And the Rhino 6 currently comes with the plugin Grasshopper. Uh, what it lets you do is it lets you do uh, visual coding. So you kind of just drag blocks and connect them with lines. And it's very accessible, perhaps, for engineers who haven't done a lot of coding in the past. But it also has a, uh, an API for many, many different coding languages. Uh, but the, the more, I'd say, practical one would be Python, which is it's a very uh, accessible coding language for getting started. It's very well documented, um, and it's very popular amongst engineers. Is there a library that you use specifically in Python? Uh, the, I mean, just the usual stuff. So like um, all the math, math stuff, um, pandas is good for data. Uh, working with data, uh, TensorFlow, which is the AI stuff, is also Python, um, and you can run all of that in Rhino. So Rhino is a um, it's a computer-aided design tool. Uh, it's very similar to a lot of other CAD, CAD packages. It's um, but anyway, the, I mean, essentially, all you want is like in the far future when people are learning about this, and none of these packages are really meaningful anymore, you want some sort of CAD software linked with a programming environment if you're doing physical structures and engineering, right? 
um, Rhino Grasshopper. For topology optimization, it's pretty thoroughly developed at this point. Um, you can, uh, SolidWorks 2018, just this year, actually released a topology optimization uh, analysis tool, so you can do that. You can make all your designs look organic, but be rigorously optimized. It's pretty neat. What do you mean organic? Uh, organic in the sense that like it's all curves or it resembles like coral Got or it. a tree branch as opposed to everything cylinders and columns and squares and uh, unnatural. So uh, that's pretty neat. So we'll come back to that in one second. Uh, yeah. Are there for also? I feel like you were going to continue with more tools. More tools. There's probably a bunch I'm not aware of. Okay. But. Uh, Rhino and Grasshopper are my favorite right now. Um, my The classes that I'm taking right now have a strong emphasis on computational geometry. If you want to modify your design, it has to be modifiable, right? You need to be able to work with whatever shape you've defined, right? Like you can define some curve with like a crazy long polynomial and it'll just be a pain to actually move it around. So that's where you move from like a mathematical description to a computer-aided design description, something you can work with, right? So understanding that transition and then porting using using your understanding of how that geometry is really defined lets you generate these designs because you know exactly you know what what control point you're moving to modify it in a particular direction right so can you define computational geometry a little bit more does that mean that basically the geometry yeah. class you took in high school you just putting all of those rules into the computer oh yeah it's uh that, that's a good way of describing it so like we've all we all took geometry in high school uh -huh. it's exactly what you just said it's taking that and shoving it in a computer and using it for some purpose rather than using algebra to describe a line you're using how the angles of the bisector well yeah just stuff other. like that um the i mean i've i've taken you know barely a year of this stuff but um Computational geometry, so an example would be like in geometry you learned the formula for a circle, mm -hmm. right? And like that's great, but what if you want to turn that circle into like a teardrop shape? Mm -hmm. You could define the circle as like, you know, give it a, give it a radius and that's it. Mm -hmm. Or you can define it as a, set, a sequence of four, you know, curves and you make those curves such that you can adjust control points and like drag a point out to make a teardrop, mm. right? And when you're, when you're working with, you know, maybe not topology optimization, but because they're, they, they uh, get rid of elements rather than adjusting the curves. Although, well, anyway, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but having a sound foundation in computational geometry lets you uh, it gives you a lot of control over changing your your geometry in the computer. Um, let's see, how, can, how else can I define it? That, that was a pretty that was a pretty good example that illustrated it fairly well. A pretty big component of it that I would add is the optimization aspect of it, because in computer science, there's usually the obvious like brute force way where like. You want to see if a point is connected to another point, right? So you check that point relative to every other point in the point cloud, and you, you're you using a lot of computational power. So 
a lot of computational geometry is like, we need to do this, or yeah, we need to do this. How do we make it such that we don't have to push the computer as hard, right? How can we be clever? And then how can we, um, you know, with our understanding of geometry, find like shortcuts or properties? And then uh, if you can parallelize it, then you're in really good shape. So you want things to scale linearly. You don't want it to be such that, say you're optimizing for five variables, you don't want it to be that it takes n to the fifth as many, you know, computational, you know, power to solve that because you'll just run out of memory very, very quickly. You want it to be 5n, so it's linear, right? <clears throat> and then if you want to do five times as much, you just get five times as much memory and you're good. So... Uh, yeah, optimization, that's a real big one, right? Cool. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about very specifically, I've been really interested in the Autodesk software. And the, I mentioned this a little mm -hmm. earlier in the Autodesk generative, generative design tools, yeah. which from like a pop side perspective or a popular engineering perspective mm -hmm. is where I started seeing the term generative design start circling circulating yeah. when they actually released their generative design package, a native in Autodesk. So do you know anything about that that you can talk about? Yeah, so um, Autodesk is really great for students because they typically give you know free educational licenses, so I really like them for that. Uh, they have, they had like a generative design tool that I like emailed them a bunch, but I never got access to. Um, they have they have a topology optimizer built into Inventor that you can use. So that'll, that'll if you may, generate one design. Um, but the, the generative design tool that I wasn't able to get into, that one also has like a selection algorithm. It'll, it'll plot all the generated designs, then it'll help you pick which one you want. Mm -hmm. It'll sort of graph the relevant, the relevant mechanical characteristics on this plot, and you'll be able to see mm -hmm. the advantages of the different designs. Like, that's one thing that I kind of learned through uh, undergrad was like, you could have, for instance, the, the mechanical properties aren't like a strict winner, right? There's kind of trade-offs. Like, do you want to be really... Uh, really strong but probably more brittle or do you want to be more uh, more resistant to like uh, being broken with like a hammer but then it's probably like a bit softer so it's not cracking mm -hmm. and it's similar with the generated designs you have to not only like test it and optimize it correctly you also have to pick the ones that you've generated correctly so um and then there's a bunch of other things that happen and the the overlap with machine learning and the, the problems that they run into is very similar like what if you rather than um generating like this enormous field of possibilities you sort of traverse that possibility space by modifying your parameters in a way that like fits a trend you notice that like getting rid of this element here makes the design like lighter so you keep eliminating elements around yeah. that same region right mm -hmm. but you can you can run into like dead ends it's kind of like solving a maze right like uh if you take the brute force approach and this is where the like the optimization aspect of it becomes really key the brute force approach is you solve for your entire design space of all your possibilities but of course that takes that's like a very exponentially intensive approach to searching right um if instead you like follow a trend that's better 
but then you're solving a maze because your trends, you could have like a local minimum or a local maximum, or you could have these islands where the design at this point just like correlates in this weird perfect storm where it's like really strong, but you don't see it because the path to it looks yeah. really uh, this. Uh, what's the word? Um, not not encouraging, right? Like you're following the the trend, and the trend looks bad, but then it spikes up. Yeah. Right. And machine learning is very similar. So, interesting. Um, that's that's where um, if you understand genetic algorithms, genetic algorithms they'll introduce like a mutation if it finds itself in this like dead end. The the like the search path will just jump. So it's kind of like if you were in a maze and you're trying to solve the maze. Your genetic algorithm gets to a dead end and then it just like jumps over the fence, right? Mm. And then it keeps going, right? And that lets you, if you're lucky, you can find like really, really brilliant solutions without having to, you know, digest the impossible, infinite possibility space. Interesting. And then for Autodesk particularly, yeah. um, are you mentioning these things because they're what Autodesk offers that other software don't, or are these just general principles for generative design? What I was rambling about was more general principles, but Autodesk is the product that they offered was very, uh, my understanding from what I could tell was it's specific to structural design. So it would be very much in the topology optimization space. Uh, they probably wouldn't have as many like local minimum problems in their design space. Um, and it's mechanical, so it's you know more or less three dimensions. Um, you can generate most of those possibilities, uh, and yeah, so it's it's like very mechanical. So their their plots would, I I suspect, would be something along the lines of like weight versus stiffness, or uh, weight versus like maximum deflection, right? So like how much it, how much a design stretches out, right? Um, just like the mechanical characteristics. And there, there are trade-offs, right? Like if it's infinitely strong, it's probably heavy. Mm -hmm. if, it if it's very stiff, it might be uh, brittle. But anyway. Cool. So could you maybe list off some properties that people use as their constraints when they're doing these, running these algorithms and, and how, say, you know, you would need more breakthroughs in material science to maybe accurately model electronic structure in your and how that's implicated by what your macro structure is. Yeah. What your macro structure is um, with, or with, yeah. So just, properties. Yeah, properties and how, you know, maybe you need new breakthroughs in other fields to actually understand how those properties are influenced by other properties. Yeah, this is another, so this is kind of the difference between physics and engineering, right? An engineer just wants it to work, mm -hmm. right? Whereas a physicist cares about like a very beautiful theory and they're both valid and important. Don't, don't get me wrong. So an engineering company, they're trying to like get an optimization to work they'll just make a bunch of physical test specimens and break them all, right? And with that approach, it doesn't matter if maybe their supplier had a defective casting process and they have, like, you know, some property that we don't even know exists. They'll get the information they need out of their physical testing, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if you have a very elaborate theory but it misses something, then you're in trouble. With regards to topology optimization, you, you have to have somebody who is, uh, understands the theory mechanically, has a background in materials. It would probably be a combination of people collaborating. It, it, it would have to be. And then 
to transfer that to the real world, you would have to have somebody with manufacturing experience to be able to pick out, like, this welding process introduces uh, different properties at this location that you didn't account for in your optimization, right? Uh, as for breakthroughs, um, solid mechanics is pretty reliable at this point. One of the limitations particular to generative design, um, I mentioned earlier in the talk how generative design gives you infinite complexity in the design space. And like, that's great, but you have to be able to actually make it, mm -hmm. right? And one of, the, one of the popular ways of doing that affordably and like accessibly is additive manufacturing or 3D printing, right? But 3D printing is essentially a giant weld, mm -hmm. right? And you have... Depending on the type of 3D printing. Yes. So it depends on what type of printing you're doing, of course. Um, but you run into all the, all the unknowns of that new manufacturing technique, mm -hmm. right? So do you want to analyze like a smooth curve of something when in reality your print has like seams or like layers to it? Um, and then do you care about your, like say you're doing uh, strings of, you know, molten plastic being laid out with FDM printing. Do you care that the, as the plastic is cooling down, you're having residual thermal stresses in your filament and how that's affecting your final product and where. And then one thing that I really like to emphasize is that, you know, anytime a pipeline breaks, my what I interpret is that it's usually a fracture error. Some engineer will pick a really strong alloy and then it cracks because somebody welded it wrong, right? So, and that's where my manufacturing background comes in, like uh, welding, fracturing, like all of these things are what'll, you know, trip you up in your analysis. Um, like your, your topology optimization may be like perfectly, uh, Per perfectly optimized for this particular condition, but it sacrifices a lot in like fracture characteristics or something else or an unforeseen event, right? But it's still very powerful. So I don't know. What's going to be really cool is when you have, when you have that user interface moment of having a, a software that any engineer with any level of training can go into and they can click, or maybe not any other level of training, but an undergraduate level of, of training can go into and they have a drop down menu of, of say, manufacturability, strength, weight, thermal resistance, thermal characteristics, etc. and they can set all of those, and then they can hit run, and the algorithm will spit out a part that's perfectly designed with material specifications and, and the manufacturing type processes that they should use um, on the other end. How far off do you think we are from that? Um, there, there's not going to be any, like, magical box, but I'm, I'm very optimistic because... The brief research that I helped with, we were getting, uh, you know, mass improvements of 30 to 40 percent, and that was just our first iteration. We, we didn't need 30, 40 percent in weight. Weight savings. We were optimizing for reduced uh, support structure materials. So if you were, like, printing, you know, an igloo on Mars out of, the, out of the material, you could save a bunch of material that way and, like, not use your tools as much, right? Um, and that was just, like we weren't even like tuning and really getting all the parameters correct. It was just like, that was like our very early attempt and we were getting 30, 40%. It was uh, very impressive. So like when you're, when you're trying to compete 
with, you know, for instance, uh, a workforce that can be paid a thousand times less than you, well, this is a way to be a thousand times better, mm -hmm. right? And you can be hyper-customized and you can make things that are like exactly what a particular person needs or exactly what a particular weather environment cares about. And, you know, integrating the the design process together with the analysis process, it's... And the manufacturability. And the manufacturability is this perfect storm of like uh, free complexity, and you know computers just enable so much it's uh i i really think that this is uh this is gonna change a lot because you can be you know a thousand times better it's it's very it's very competitive and it's also the type of skill set like we met we mentioned how interdisciplinary it was it was like manufacturing materials you know computer science right and that's just the engineering type of optimization you can apply it to like designing a song mm -hmm. right or discovering molecules in biology mm -hmm. right um and the interdisciplinary nature really rewards like a renaissance approach to engineering which is like reinforced with experience mm -hmm. so if you go into this sort of stuff you're going to be more valued as you work more so i think this is really great for anybody going into engineering like learn code take your statistics class seriously it's like You'll have to reread it again anyway if you if you don't if you don't do it that way. But um, yeah, very optimistic. All right, so Vlad, I, I really wanted to ask you about biomimicry and and how lessons from biology are being worked into generative design. You mentioned you know doing things organically and resulting in coral shapes or in you know orange pulp shapes. Um, you also mentioned, you know, genetic algorithms where you're taking lessons from genetics and applying it to how you have your algorithms evolve. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll answer kind of in reverse. So genetic algorithms is um, when you have, when you're trying to find solutions with a lot of variables, the design space grows exponentially with respect to your variables. Right, so say you had two variables, your design space would be n squared. If you had three, it would be n cubed, right? <clears throat> and then it just keeps going. Um, that may seem kind of weird to describe a design space in more than three dimensions, but it's really just a table. So like if you were picking out a house, you would have how many bedrooms does it have? What's the square footage? Does it have a garage? Is it a heated garage? And like, there you go, you already have however many design variables. Um, Solving that one is pretty straightforward, um, but if you have a design that's more complicated than just you know figuring out how much a house costs, you can end up with, in a position where you cannot use <coughs> a brute force method because your design space is essentially like functionally infinite, like you can't brute force it anymore. So the um, you use like a gradient descent approach where like you modify something a little bit and you see if your design's getting better or worse in the direction that you care about. Um, and then you sort of follow that path. Genetic algorithms let you jump out of dead ends. So it's kind of what I talked about before with like the maze. Um, the reason it's genetic is because you want it to occur in a seemingly random fashion. Uh, you have no trend to follow because the trends you had been following that got you to that dead end searching the design space gave you a dead end, right? So a genetic algorithm is just like a randomization factor that lets you uh, explore more of the design space 
in an orderly way. Uh, and it's inspired by biology because that's how our understanding of DNA works is like you have natural selection going on and optimizing up to extremes, but like if a species overly specializes and then becomes defective, it like dies out, right? So you can't just rely on optimization to get you to the end point. You have to have a randomization factor to like differentiate and, you know, speciate even when you seemingly maybe don't have to. Um, but that's that's how we how we work on genetic algorithms. And is the um, math similar to what they use in genetics or when they what they use in evolutionary biology? Um, I'm, I'm not super versed in, you know, biology or uh, evolutionary biology, but, um, it's just a randomization factor that you introduce in your code. You can have, I mean, you could really put it anywhere you want, but my understanding is the point is to be able to, uh, meaningfully explore vast design spaces or sets of data and you know reach meaningful conclusions and that's how that uh, the robot that won at go that's what it was kind of using was an inductive approach with the genetic mutation factor in the code um so it's very very exciting because you're you're no longer limited by chasing exponents with you know linearly improving computer hardware or like a very small exponent in growth and like I oh, know I like it. So, and then with uh, biomimicry. So, similar to the genetic algorithm type stuff, you can draw a lot of um, parallels from nature. What got me interested in it was just seeing the first structural optimizations and how they resembled trees. But they didn't resemble trees because the coder was like, oh, that would look pretty, it resembled a tree because that was the optimal shape for mm -hmm. that loading condition. And it's like mathematically rigorous and it's in a way perfect. So that really appealed to me. Uh, it also appealed to me because it wasn't something that I would have been able to come up with on my own. But biomimicry isn't just limited by like really good structures. In my opinion, have, being able to design a structure optimally is like fairly primitive because the, the theory is pretty well known already. Um, but anyway, so like a lot of other parallels were arising with like cell structures, something in computational geometry for uh, ordering triangles or like basically you get a cloud of points from like a 3D scan or something and you want to connect them all into a surface. What you do is you you create a bunch of surfaces out of that point cloud by connecting uh, points and sets of three to form like small triangles, and that's like there's just some mathematical construct. Yeah, and then you that's called triangulation, and you end up with this like surface. Um, uh, triangulating it correctly, there's some you know math and geometry that goes into it, and you end up with one of the solutions is called Voronoi patterns, and they resemble the way cellular structures grow. So a Voronoi cell is like, if you look really closely at like your hand, you'll see little little skin cells or whatever, or just boundaries where things were growing. And like the shape that they look is the same as like, if you blow a big, a bunch of bubbles, the shape of those bubble like boundaries, that's like a Voronoi cell. And you can generate those from uh, uh, tetrahedrons in 3D or just, you know, Delaunay triangles in 2D. Um, but what's neat about them is that if you understand like resonance 
characteristics. So like a bridge that'll resonate and then end up breaking because it's too symmetrical, like that can be a problem. Or uh, the way fracture lines will, like if you have a piece of wood, it'll have a grain that it can split across. With these Voronoi cells, you can, like it's what nature does and it prevents it from having these resonant vulnerabilities uh, at that level and also it's just really resistant to fracture and really strong so uh, it's it, it's superior to a hexagonal uh, pattern because you don't have those like symmetry lines and you can also extend it to 3d um, so yeah I, that that would be the biomimicry that I've done lately and just nature is crazy man like uh, you you find I'm sure in material sciences you'll come across like resolin, which is found in like cricket joints for how they jump really far. You find it in fleas. You'll find it in the resolin. Yeah, resolin and like uh, mantis shrimp will use it in their arms. They'll like it resembles like a kind of like a Pringle shape or like a saddle, and they use it like a spring to tense it up. And then release it and they can they can either just like break apart you know other animals and eat them or they'll like shoot you know uh bubbles and then uh just like superheated water that heats up to the temperature of the surface of the sun just like ridiculous stuff so wait, wait, wait. you gotta elaborate on that a little bit okay, mantis so, shrimp are doing this okay there's like a bullet shrimp and then there's mantis shrimp and they're kind of similar one of them will has a claw that just like shuts very quickly and it shuts so rapidly that it creates this like bubble underwater and then as the bubble collapses oh. it shoots it creates this like spark of light and that light is hotter than the sun right and like similar things happen with just you know when you start boiling things at really high pressure like deep underwater um or like spinning a submarine propeller really quickly just the cavitation bubbles will just mince mm -hmm. whatever metal you have um but well i mean kind of bringing it back to your original question like i was excited seeing similarities between rigorous mathematics engineering and physics arriving at the same conclusions that we see in the world around us right and like you can do the path of going from theory to nature or to agreeing with nature but i'm also curious in going the other route and maybe reading some biology textbooks or there are like biomechanics textbooks that you can read and trying to go in reverse and seeing well maybe we can skip the step where we spend you know a couple decades you know digging around in equations and like look at what nature does already and see how good that is um so yeah that's what i like about it cool so, nice cells are sweet so this is really a, a true convergence of high performance computing and the breakthroughs that we've had there yep it will be a convergence with quantum computing once we have that new computation power unlocked yep. um it, it is a convergence with artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and machine learning and neural networks and what we currently have and once you have more sentient ai things will just get obscene yeah in terms of convergences that would be like a quantum leap that would be a total totally different but be nuts yeah and and then it's also a convergence with not just biotech and how you can apply this for biotechnology and make new biotech or biomedical devices or run analysis on biotechnology but it's also a convergence using lessons from biology and evolutionary biology is that is that like a fair summary are there any other technologies that you see coming into play oh and then add and then manufacturing technologies and additive manufacturing and what we've seen there yeah computers have sort of revolutionized everything with precision control 
and then GPU offloading computations to the GPU on machines has is what revolutionized AI, mm-hmm. and that's changed just how people mm-hmm. go about making decisions now. Um, and I, I think this will be broadly pro- applied to a lot of fields because you're just you're encouraging whatever specialty you are to use the power of uh, you know code and that method of thinking and computers to do what you can't think of on your own in your own mind, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's that's really cool. You're turning into like a super being cyborg. Yeah, cyborg. Augmenting the design experience. Your your cognitive ability is no longer your limitation on what you can achieve, and that's awesome. Yeah, there's an interesting... If, did you watch the Joe Rogan Elon Musk uh, interview? Uh, I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I my business professor had some opinions on that one. So in, in the interview, he goes off on a rant about BCI. I think it was in that interview about BCI and how BCI is not really like something to fear, and artificial intelligence is something to fear. But what might Remind end up me, happening? What's BCI? Brain computer interface. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Sorry for the acronyms. Uh, what it, what it might be like is how you have two two nervous systems. You have your conscious nervous system and your unconscious nervous system. Yep. And one is hierarchical to the other, but they work together and they can't live without that symbiosis. Oh, so, for sure. So you and artificial intelligence, the linkage between you two, as artificial intelligence becomes more sentient, you're going to eventually have a a new nervous system surrounding you and we're already kind of starting to have that but it's just not directly interfacing with our brains yet that's going to get really interesting so i had a few more questions for you sure on the note of convergences so where's all this data coming from because i imagine you need like a, a buttload of data to actually run these algorithms and run them effectively particularly if you're training your machine learning models so is this is this data that's being reported is it data that is that is you know there's just trillions of sensors that you're able to monitor trillions of different things um so you to get your data that's where the generative part comes in mm-hmm. um you if you're doing like a structural engineering model mm-hmm. and you have an understanding of like what is your range of geometric mm-hmm. you know constraints you can generate across that re- like at a certain resolution across that span right and so you'll get your data if you're optimizing for something else, like the sort of things Facebook does, well, they just collect data from people and then optimize it that way. Um, I took a course on industrial data analytics. They talked about how like data is plentiful and abundant, but uh, extracting knowledge from mm-hmm. it is what's really, really key. Yeah. And that's where you know having good optimization schemes comes into play and actually the computational geometry stuff is applicable to data fitting um a lot of the methods that they use for 3d space like triangulation uh you can you you can apply those methods to n dimensions you can they're not constrained by dimensions just by the the computational power you need to solve that scale linearly or is this a scale it depends on the algorithm, but a lot of them are linear, mm. and a lot of them are n log n complexity. Mm. So, uh, the the so topology optimization is one hot part of. Or I mean, that part's pretty well established at this point. Uh, but the the data fitting aspect it is what. I suspect a lot of these big companies are really hungry for Mm -hmm. is computational geometry to fit your data efficiently Mm -hmm. for for those big data sets and 
that's tough. One, one application that immediately jumps to mind is, have you heard of the Aura Ring? I have not. So it's basically like an Apple Watch mm-hmm. on your ring, on your ring finger, or on any of your fingers. Okay. And what the point of it is, is you know when you're in the hospital and they have the constant heart rate variability monitoring. Yeah. So they do that on your finger because that's where you're most sensitive. The skin's really thin. Um, so they basically they pack a bunch of sensors into a ring, and the point of the ring is to gauge your sleep and your sleep analytics. Mm-hmm. So I just listened to a podcast where the founder of this company was talking to to Dave As- Asprey on Bulletproof Radio. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about how they have tens of millions of hours of sleep data. But how are they even going to begin to parse that? This could be a really interesting application. And, you know, generatively designing different sleep cycles or daily routines to optimize your sleep could be something that's really interesting. Yeah, once you, like, have your have your trend for your patient, you would – those would be your uh, – the theory you would be using, mm-hmm. right? And then – you would create some widget or you know treatment profile, and then generate a bunch of different mm-hmm. you know treatments that comply with your uh, you know measured uh, trends, and then pick the best one, and then mm-hmm. that can be customized to each individual patient. Yeah. Um, what I really like about that though is how you're not relying on the fallbacks of intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, intuition still has its place, mm-hmm. um, especially with getting this sort of stuff to be optimized well so you can tackle larger problems, but not being limited by like, oh, I don't know how to CAD a structure with millions of branches. Mm-hmm. That's no longer a problem. So cool. It's very cool. Cool. So then rapid fire, a few, few rapid fire questions. Sure. What what do you what do you think what applications do you think will be the most impacted or what new applications will arise for generative design? You can list industries, you can list specific parts of industries, etc. Are there any that you've thought about a lot or that you've seen literature about? Uh, I'm in manufacturing. I am betting that uh, hyper customization is going to be a resurgence in manufacturing in like. Uh, westernized nations where, for instance, labor is not cheap, but you can automate the manufacturing and, free. and your uh, your engineer becomes valuable again because you you care about that complexity. You don't care about mass producing the same thing because you're at a point where you can uh, fairly uh, cheaply make it hyper custom and uh, immeasurably better for your particular customer. Right. So bringing value back to your, you know, laborer in a developed country, that's what I'm hoping will be hoping will be like the the big, big thing. Um, And then there's the usual things that the big, big tech companies are doing for figuring out trends in human behavior. Uh, Right now, that seems to be well. my editorial opinion is it's a bit disruptive, Um, but the there are certain personalities I follow who talk about how it could empower the consumer. So who are those personalities? Well, I guess they're not plural, but I'm a big fan of Tristan Harris. Uh, he talks about how, where he, he sort of developed a lot of those uh, techniques for making your technology more, uh, more enticing. Um, and he talks about how the, because it's so ad-driven, you can... Um, you can sort of lose time that you don't really want to. Um, 
but you can use that for for good in a way and have these apps that are just very very empowering because they uh, make you better okay but, cool. and then i just feel like a lot of the public is a bit fed up with these with these time waster mm-hmm. apps so work maybe bring back the the pay for apps knowing that you are the true client mm-hmm. and you are paying for a service that is empowering you as opposed to something free that you know is bad for you right so other other applications just rattling them off floor plan layouts you know yeah computer architecture uh floor plan layouts i've heard drug discovery is one uh urban planning uh i would say i mean i'm just like sort of conjecture this like pure conjecture but uh, the health thing you mentioned, so planning what exercise routine is optimal for you in particular, uh, diet type stuff. Um, let's see. So for, I could probably list a couple for engineering. So like structural optimization, wire layout, um, circuit board, heat design. So placing your components so that you minimize your space without compromising thermal uh, stability. Um Let's see. I don't know. I think I haven't given it too much thought. Just complexity. Complexity okay. is, is really the thing. So would you, would you say that this kind of, whereas 3D printing kind of democratizes or makes, makes um, you know, manufacturing complexity and physical complexity essentially free, that something like generative design and topological optimization is the tool that is going to unlock free design complexity? Yeah, but that's like that's that's tough because it takes like uh, takes education to get there. But with that in mind, the trend that I'm seeing is that more and more engineers are really taking coding seriously, and like knowing programming is continuing to grow. And I think like in the future, just high schoolers are going to be required to learn whatever the next programming language is very very early. They already do. There's like AP programming. I remember in my high school. Um, else was there um yeah complexity is free uh but yeah it's got a little little ways to go yeah free complexity that's that's the big one cool to to wrap up if you had to give advice to to if you were on a plane sitting next to a ceo of a big manufacturing company in the u.s or or anywhere and they and they said to you as an engineering graduate student right now at the cutting edge of technology, at the cutting edge of research, what is one thing that you think that I should be paying attention to? And let's, for all intents and purposes, you were to say it is generative design. How would you then explain why generative design is what these CEOs should be paying attention to? Um, I'm going to give kind of a philosophical answer. I mentioned in the podcast that my guiding philosophy is for my graduate studies is computer-aided decision-making. What I am trying to accomplish is to make it such that my cognitive ability to you know, understand a certain data set is, not, is no longer a limitation, or not even a certain data set, just like be, have those like superhuman abilities based on whatever I have access to. Um, but that has to be guided by really sound fundamentals. So. Advice to a grad student doing generative design things. Um, I would have really sound fundamentals, take statistics very seriously, um, take 
One, one thing that I found that was something I wished I had done more of would be learning how to think in new circumstances. So engineering is like fairly specialized, but maybe there's less of a emphasis on new circumstances and different unusual new design problems. So like in the future, a manufacturing firm will come across a new technology that they want to implement and optimize. Knowing how to digest that uh, using these like very powerful computer-aided decision-making skills is what I particularly value, right? And then I guess the last thing I would emphasize is that um, having a very fancy tool doesn't necessarily make you better. Like in general, the new tech is like an amplifier of your existing ability. Um, but your existing ability has to be there. The tech is still valuable, but you have to be like real, you have to have really sound fundamentals. Um, I'd suggest like take seriously, like take psychology and like sociology stuff pretty seriously because that's what you need to know how to handle like unusual circumstances. And then for the manufacturing CEO, I'd say get a couple data guys on your team. Um, but data guys who understand that it's a tool, it's not magic, right? Who really know what's going on, um, who value, like who value being able to get meaningful trends as opposed to like get a meaningful interpretation, a meaningful solution as opposed to like a PhD level, hyper precise single model that like takes them six months, right? Yeah, and that goes back to the computer aided decision making rather than computer decision making that's yeah excellent exactly yeah. it's it's meant to assist you um yeah manu manufacturing oh man it's uh it's what i want to do um i understand engineering is like really capital intensive you're dealing with uh really you need a lot of training you need people who are just like inherently uh, understand the trade-off between like practical insights versus theory versus uh, just all these interdisciplinary considerations that are not just technical but also like the psychological and dealing with people but uh, with regards to with regards to generative design just like what else would I say <clears throat> hire hire guys who have like maybe have like an appreciation for coding and are using it for their decision making like people who um they're presented with a problem they can tackle and solve it and optimize it more powerfully than somebody who's just using a piece of paper but at the same time you need to be able to do it on a piece of paper really really well too because it's an amplifier it's not just a pure addition to whatever your skills are mm -hmm. right computer aided computer aided decision making it's a tool it's a tool right wonderful um but it's it's a tool that lets you you can come up with things that you couldn't otherwise like your your brain could not your brain could not think of it your hand even with a mouse could not draw it mm -hmm. it has to be coded it has to be generatively procedurally created mm -hmm. um and when you start applying that more broadly the possibilities are endless and interdisciplinary experience it's i'm having a lot of fun <laughs> well that's great i'll throw one more term out there uh that that peter likes to use 
evolution by intelligent direction rather than evolution by natural selection is also very interesting how we're, we're evolving technology so quickly and applying evolution based on our intelligent direction right now. And it's manifesting yeah. itself directly in generative design, which is fascinating. So, cool. Vlad, thank you so much. Yeah, um, thanks I for know, having me. I know you're on Instagram. Oh, man, I haven't been uploading a whole lot of social media this year. I've been reading that Tristan Harris guy, and he's like, take a little bit of a break. <laughs> but if you if you want to find me, yeah, I have, I've kept my Instagram stuff up if you want to take a look at some of that. Otherwise, in the future, use whatever search engine is still alive. Yeah. You can probably find me. And what's your Instagram handle? Uh, it's just at Buryakov. It's my last name. So that'll be in the description somewhere, I'm sure. Cool. Thank you so much, dude. All right. Thanks, Max. Awesome. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest insights, intel, and new content, then head on over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier, one word, dot org forward slash subscribe.